I'd um, like to ask for your attention for a little bit of mapping. Um, we are uh, deep into our retreat. This is day five. And I'd like to um, use the map of Satipatthana practice, as you may uh, be aware, this is a, probably the, the mainstay of much meditation teaching uh, in early Buddhist teachings, uh, forms of Satipatthana, um, a term that is either translated as foundations for mindfulness, which is the famous one, and um, it hinges on the interpretation of uh, the patana bit in Satipatthana as the understanding of this being a particular domain in which we establish mindfulness. There's another interpretation of that term, equally useful, maybe even more etymologically correct, and that doesn't speak of the patana bit as foundation, but that speaks of uh, establishing. Yeah. So, in the first definition of Satipatthana, we have mindfulness and its objective domains, and namely body, feeling tone, mind states, and mind content. Um, in the second definition, we'd have Satipatthana as the activity, not the objective domain in which we establish mindfulness, but the skill and the practice of actually establishing mindfulness. In other words, the shift of emphasis is not so much in the objective place where it happens, but in the subjective <coughs> activity of doing it. Many of us are familiar with some of the teachings on Satipatthana. Usually uh, teaching folk like us are selective. We pick up on some bits and we don't seem to have much to say on other bits because we may not know it or we may not think it's useful or may, we may think it doesn't belong into a retreat context. Um, then maybe another occasion to say more on this. Suffice to say, Satipatthana are, amongst other things, also a map of what we call experience. There aren't many such maps in Buddhist teaching. One of them is the teaching on the sense spheres, in other words, mapping all our experience in terms of the six sensory channels. That's one map. Uh, another map is the five khandhas, the five aspects of experience, trying to understand the raw material from which we create world and personality which we then identify with either way, uh, to look at this in terms of five big components and identify those components in our experience. And I think the third big map for experience in scare quotes is uh, the Satipatthanas. So you have four big areas in which all your experience takes place. There's a somatic area called kaya. 
There is a hedonic area connected with pleasure and pain, appreciation, liking and not liking, called Vedana. There is an affective domain called Chitta, which deals with the experiential center of our experience, namely heart, emotion, volition, things like that. And finally, there is a cognitive dimension, which deals with thought, image, construct, and patterns of thoughts and images of constructs. Now, these four areas, they are not the actual practice, just to be clear. The actual practice are a lot more detailed, but these four areas are just the raw material of our meditative task. Yeah? This, is our, this is where we do our spade work. So it makes use, makes sense to have a theoretical understanding that what I experience in terms of Buddhist meditation practice for establishing mindfulness makes sense to look at under four different angles. One is somatic, one is hedonic, one is affective, one is cognitive. Now the interesting thing is that all of these aspects are happening all the time. Every event in our experience has these four dimensions. Think of it like a TV station. There's many channels and they're all broadcasting at the same time, but you can choose in which you tune into. So the tuning in happens via attention. If you don't do anything, you'll be in channel four. That's the discursive cognitive bit. That's where the story goes. That's where the meanness and its narrative unfolds. Yeah? We taste something, it tastes nice. We have a concept for it after the pleasure and experience. We start thinking about the concept. We wonder where does it come from? How much does it cost? Who do they look? Who harvested? Can I get it tomorrow? That reminds me of another one of this sort I ate yesterday. Yeah? And the pleasant experience fades into the background. And what takes foreground is the story that has become Buddhist uh, teachings calls that different things. At the very early stages, it calls, it's calling, it, it calls it perception. Yeah? A little later, it calls it thinking. Sanya first, then vitaka and vichara. Then, uh, next stage, it calls it um, thought, mangsati. Then, a little further, it calls it papancha, conceptual proliferation. Yeah? So, it is in the nature of the mind to think about the things it feels. This is hardwired. We are thinking creatures. We are not just interested in tasting the strawberry. We want a name for the strawberry. We want a price tag. We want, to a, we want a story about the strawberry. Yeah. We all know that. And this is in the nature of the mind for this to take place. The question is, A, can we modulate this process? And B, how useful is it? Yeah. So Buddhist... Uh, Satipatthana teachings suggests to us that it is important that we A, learn to distinguish these domains and B, that it is necessary to make choices where in which of these domains we place our attention and we learn to sustain our attention in that domain because it is particularly useful for certain things. If you're afraid and you think about the things that make you afraid, you will be more afraid because uh, thought is speedy, thought has access to memories and fantasies, and by thinking about the things that make you, more, make you afraid, you will become more afraid. This is a very common experience. 
If, in other words, if your attention habitually stays in channel four, thinking, discursive activity, creating probability scenarios in your head, how likely this to happen, then this will fire up your system. You know? Adrenaline releases, stress factors kicking in, body tension boiling up, and so forth. <coughs> Cognitive hyperactivity, frantic pace of your thinking, feeling uneasy, feeling taut. This we all know. If I, by training, am capable, instead of feeding my, tho my thought patterns, focusing on fear and thereby feeding my fear, if I can manage to bring my attention into the body and find the somatic correspondent to my affective state of fear or anxiety. In other words, if I can go to the place in the body where the body feels the fear, which will be an unpleasant experience, that's why it's not attractive and a natural inclination. But with some training I can stay and find the pit of my stomach where I feel my fear and where you feel yours, you'll have to find out. And I can hover there and stay in the body with an unpleasant sensation connected with fear. If I manage to do that for even a minute, this fear is going to abate. Because fear, and that's the beauty of it, is as impermanent and conditioned and contingent on supporting factors as any other thing. So if I stop feeling that, feeding that fear through uh, fearful thoughts and, memory and recalling f memories connected with fear and helplessness and fantasies charged with risk and danger and horror, um, if I instead just bear with the unpleasant sensation in the pit of my stomach of a, a slight fearful knot there, I have a very good chance that this fear will abate. If it doesn't abate, it will at least not last long. And if it continues to last there, at least I will stay present in the body. If I'm in the body, I am in present tense. Yeah? That means I am likely to be able to feel, to act, to connect, and I'll be able to, in, to falsify my fearful uh, apprehensions. Yeah. I will notice that the dog I'm afraid of is going to bite me actually starts wagging its tail. Yeah. And if I am present and can acknowledge what's happening, I can see, oh, it's wagging its tails. Dogs that wag their tails generally don't bite, so it's probably not going to bite me. Yeah. So in other words, this is a very simple, almost trivial example of how a little shift of attentional focus away from the habitual channel four, where I would go thinking, making an unpleasant sensation in the body go away. We generally use thinking as a distancing strategy. Yeah? We move away from what feel. We all do that. Little children do that. Now, if you don't want to feel something, you just <gasps> hold your breath and you immediately decrease your capacity to feel. If you want to enjoy something, you breathe deeply. You open yourself up, you widen your body spaces, you slow it down. We do that with food, with sex. When we go into the bathtub, if we want to enjoy something, we slow down, we widen, we breathe more deeply. Yeah. The opposite is exactly as true. If we are fearing flood, being flooded by something powerful or strong, we flatten our breath. Yeah. We go into an anxious heckling sort of thing. 
or we just stop breathing. That's what we do when we want to cut off. You know? We just stop. Little children do that. It's our first defensive reflex. Long before we can be aggressive and turn our heads away and say, no more spinach. Yeah? We just say, we just go numb. Yeah? Cats do that when you take them by the necks. Yeah? That's where the mothers usually grab them. And we all do that. This is kind of the numb reflex. We modulate our breath, we cut back feeling, we become less sensate. We can handle overwhelm better that way. It's not pretty, it doesn't feel great. If we make a habit of it, it's going to be, you know, costly in terms of psychotherapy <coughs> later on. But, yeah. but it's useful. It stops us from being completely flooded and overwhelmed when things happen that are painful or that we just can't handle, that we don't have the resources. But out of this habit comes a tendency to mentalize and make our experience more and more cognitive and more and more abstract. Yeah? By the time we are 25, um, we have established a long habit of basically responding with abstract cognitive phenomena to sensory experience. And it takes some learning to go back and learn to inhabit the body. Not just when it's pleasant or neutral, but actually inhabit the body when it's painful or uncomfortable or slightly queasy. So that's what makes sati, kaya nupasana, mindfulness of the body, challenging. And yet that's also what makes it so rewarding, because when we learn to actually inhabit our bodies, even if they feel suboptimal, uh, this is a powerful transformative uh, stance we can take. So the first thing to know is there are four channels of my experience. Can I identify them? This is important. It is important to know the difference between a body sensation, that's what you feel, and a, a feeling tone, that's Vedana, that is pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. We've asked you to look at this, to notice when your meters go this way or go that way. Yeah? The hedonic quality, it's a funny word, but it basically means pleasure. It comes from Greek, hedone. And that is very important because that's what usually rules our attention, attentional economy. When it's pleasant, I have lots of attention for it and time. It's easy to attend to something. If it's unpleasant, I don't want it to happen. I have no time. I'm not available. So the pleasant and unpleasant dimension is probably the most formative directive force in terms of our, where our attention goes. It's a very powerful training to learn to choose where attention goes rather than just have it pulled out by pleasant things and have it pushed and pushed away by unpleasant things. So the Satipatthana model helps us to actually acknowledge where our attention goes or where it doesn't go. And it may give, give us a chance to actually consciously switch channels. Generally, this means from channel four to channel one, from, from thinking process and discursive cognitive activity to felt, embodied, sensate experience. For us, who have been practicing with the breath, sensations connected to the breath and uh, posture, orientation of this body and space. Um, we're moving on. We're interested now in 
the space that opens up after things end. Yeah. I'd like to encourage you to make a particular note today on the ending of things, when things stop, when the object of my mindfulness fades. What's happening there? There's a space in, into which that fades. And that space is increasingly interesting because that space and the climate that exists in that space is a climate we're beginning to investigate. Buddhist speak, this would be a form of citta nupassana. We're beginning to ask, what is the, the background mind quality into which the objects of our foreground attention fade into? In other words, when I'm staying with that breath that gradually tapers off, and if I feel into the space into which that tapering off takes place, how does it feel in there? Is it warm? Does it call me welcome? Is it tight? Is it dark? You know, we're beginning to, in, to be interested what the climate of that space is. We take the object, the sensation, as something that carries us into that space and then we widen our field of attention and get in touch with the climate in there. Yeah. We're not fixed in our attention to little topical occurrences of sensation. We use them to go there and then we widen our attention and begin to inhabit the field around the sensation. Yeah. We do that in the body. If you experience states of mind, anger, delight, gloominess, elation, uh, disinterest, aversion, such things, ask yourself where in the body do I feel that? Ask yourself what is the somatic aspect of this particular emotional quality. If nothing of this sort occurs, just keep making the mind more still. Just refine your awareness of the sensations connected with breathing. And particularly, pay attention to the fading of things. The career of an event in our experience begins somewhere. There's nothing and then something begins and then it gradually becomes stronger then it goes over the hump and then it tapers, fades and tapers off. Usually we're only interested uh, with nice things. We're interested in the bit just before the climax. That's the bit we're interested. We're not really interested in staying with the taste of my uh, a mouthful of bagel with, 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 with jam um, <clears throat> when I've already been chewing on it for a while. I'm not very interested in this. Even though it tastes well, I'm actually interested in the next bite. Yeah? I'm interested not in the tapering off, not in the staying with something pleasant. I'm interested in the increase, in the promise of, of maximum effectiveness of that experience. Once I'm over the hump, generally there's a sort of, okay, that was nice, what's next? Yeah? So there's something that looks on. Since I can't put in a second bite while I'm still chewing on the first, I'm probably going to think something. I'm going to think about the second bite, you know. Oh, I should have taken the other jam, you know. Or, God, God, he's taking a lot of butter, doesn't he? You know, I, usually, I, instead of staying with the gradual fading of something, even of something pleasant, you know, I move on cognitively. I switch channel from appreciation, somatic experience, and appreciating pleasant textual uh, gustatory quality. I switch channel, channel four, and think something. You know, how tired she looks, or 
why he can't put his, you know, the typical man, look at how many crumbles he leaves behind, you know. <laughs> yeah, go into, I go into a little story of something about me or about somebody else or about the next bite or about what I've done wrong and the choice of jams this morning, or, yeah. And then the next bite comes and say, oh, yeah, 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 back, back to taste, back to body, back to gustatory appreciation. Yeah. And so it goes. Yeah. We, we, I recognize in your smiles that you recognize the pattern. Yeah. So our exercise is particular steadiness in our attentional focus on the tapering off, the disappearing, the fading away. Yeah. There's a whole section on this both in the Anapanasati Sutta and uh, insofar as Anapanasati is part of Satipatthana practice, uh, you know, that encourages us to stay with things ceasing, to stay with things fading, to stay with things becoming um, gradually less and less colorful. And sustaining our attention on the decrease of an event in our experience steadies our attention. That's good for collectedness of mind. And it is a lead into the space, the background of mind, the climate wherein we have an experience. And the background that is often so intangible that we don't notice it. So we're looking for somatic anchors of states we experience. Where do I feel joy in the body? Where do I feel my fatigue, really, specifically? Where do I feel my aversion? Where do I feel the stillness of my mind? Yeah? Good. Uh, More on this later. Let's take up meditative posture. When you close your eyes and you check into the key areas of your posture, lower spine, hips, lumbar area, then bronchial area, upper chest, the position of your head, just familiarizing yourself with the tone of body, the amount of available energy, Maybe there's something new, different. We acknowledge what's already here. We acknowledge that we can sit upright. We acknowledge the differing elements in the body. The earth element manifested as the skeletal structure, the resistance of certain parts, the density, but also the extension, the fact that this body takes some space, the length of a thigh, the width of my hand on my knees, the surface onto which the weight of this body distributes. These would be all qualities of the earth element, 
Anything that offers resistance, anything that offers solidity, anything that is extensive would be called earth element in Buddhist psychology. The warmth of this body and the corresponding coolness on the back of my hands or in my neck, where I'm not covered, corresponds to the fire element, the physical qualities, coloricity, combustion. It's connected also with digestive processes, the warmth that comes from digesting and breaking down things. There's many ways I can feel that on my skin. I can feel it in the coolness of the breath that is noticeable when I breathe in into my nostrils. My mucus is warming up the inflow of air. And maybe slightly warmer out breath. I can feel my body convecting energy in areas that it is not covered. My wrists, my neck, my face. The water element we encounter in the experience of cohesion, that's the physical corresponding quality. It's the fact that this body hangs together. Anything that is fluid, anything that is flowing, is connected with the water element in this body. The strange diffused tonality in my tissues is connected with the water element. The blood that flows through my veins, the many liquids that are part of this body, all this is part of the water element. But most of all, it is this distinct experience of being coherent and that this body is cohesive. It hangs together. It can receive tonal messages. They can be felt in muscles, in tissues, in organs. There's many expressions of this. A bladder that may be filling up the sniffling of my neighbor, the gentle throb of the pulse that I can hear in my ears of my own blood (coughs) pulsing through the veins. All these are forms of the water element. (coughs) The air element has to do with my cavities, has to do with the inflow of breath and the outflow of breath. What the exchange, gaseous exchange, I share with many, many creatures on this planet. Almost any being, even very simple life forms, exchange a couple of gases with their environment. Maybe it's not full-fledged 
oxygen breathing and lungs and everything, but most creatures in some way are in metabolism with their environment. The physical quality is motility or vibrancy, vibration, not vibrancy, sorry. I can feel it right into my cells. There's a profound little trembling. If I feel very deeply into my somatic dimension, I can sense a little quivering. Fundamental quality of vibration taking place at a very profound level. Chivitindriya, the life faculty, is basically something like irritability. Sometimes we are sensitive to things we rate as pleasant and a little change in parameter or a tiny change in my availability and what was pleasant suddenly becomes unpleasant or tedious or an impingement. Deep, deep down there's something that is fundamentally sensitive and can be pleased and tickled and can also be hurt or deprived. So thinking of myself in terms of those four elements, mapping my sensate experience of this body right now, in terms of earth and fire, water and air, it's interesting, there's nothing very personal in there. It's quite elemental, as is my breath. Every moment of breathing tells me that. And the coming and going of that breath, I recognize impermanence. And my dependency on each and every breath, I, I recognize contingency, conditionality, the dukkha aspect of my life. And the elemental quality of my gaseous exchange, inhaling O2, giving off CO2, I recognize the impersonal nature of my experience. What makes me alive does not belong to me. I don't own it, not a single breath. We're all breathing the same air. Delicately connected to a biosphere that makes all this possible. In the mix of these elements, I can detect a climate. Maybe when I lower my attention, allow it to spread through the body, whatever you feel of that body, 
allow it to expand, I can recognize differing tones. Maybe there's something old in there. Maybe something that is bright. Something that is taut or sturdy. Maybe when my attention goes there, it's not welcome. That space in there may not want to be attended to. It may need that I am more gentle, that I behave more prudently in there, rather than wading in and demanding sensations and clarity. I I may need to go and just sit there for a while and wait, like I would sit in a clearance, very quietly. Completely awake, completely alert, with a tinge of amazement, and yet with no clear idea what's going to come out there into the clearance. fully present without object focus. Relishing my aliveness, relishing my senses, even with eyes closed. Sensing the quiver Learning to trust this, learning to be with this without demanding clarity or outcome or efficiency. Being there with my own quiver, my own trembling, my own not knowing. Right there at the edge without taking refuge to thoughts and names and categories I can identify.
Good. Stretch for a moment, please. So this precious time we have, this period of retreat, we're already over the, the midpoint, as the Kinshino mentioned. And in a certain sense, that means we're moving on the downward roll. And at the same time, it's really these days after the midpoint and before we get to the last day or two, when we're really in the heart of the retreat, we've made the journey into the territory of our inner experience and we can really explore very deeply and offer ourselves the possibility of profound discovery, transformative discovery in the territory of our lives. So to be really wholehearted, to really engage so fully or as fully as you're able in this practice. It's not something that's designed for when you're sitting cross-legged or walking back and forth or standing still. Of course, for those, yes, but not just for that. It's really a practice that we can take into every moment, into every situation. And, of course, it's our life we're concerned with. So uh, all of it is of interest here. One place we can usefully pay attention is with regard to the working period, the working meditation, we call it on the schedule. Sometimes that seems a little bit like lip service to what we'd like to think it was. But actually the intention is to use it as a time to be awake. It's a great place to notice your patterns. It's a great place to notice how we start to try and push ourselves to perform, to succeed, to get it right, to feel terrified if we've made a mistake, or even just anticipating with fear that the boss, those really big, mean, nasty staff people who are actually really quite sweet, might be angry with us if we don't do it right or do enough of it or somehow do it the way it's supposed to be. And all that fear that can arise. So useful to stop, breathe, take a moment to know I'm about to scrub the vegetables, wash the dishes, sweep the floor, whatever it is, and the world will probably not end if I don't do it perfectly or if I don't manage to do it all. And yet, I'll wholeheartedly do it as well as I can. <coughs> it's one of those places where because our performance is so much associated with how we're valued, how we're appreciated, how we get a sort of both what we could call sort of narcissistic supplies, a sense of feeling good about ourselves, but also we receive the really necessary relational warmth from others in relationship to doing good, doing well, doing enough. And we want that so much, it's understandable it's pressured for us. 
but to see, can we breathe? Can we be free in that place, or a little more so, by just being mindful in our bodies, and yet aware also of what our minds are doing with the result, the outcome piece of the activity. And it ties back to what I mentioned last night. We get quite charged about it because, of course, if we screw up really badly, there's a risk we get sent out. We get pushed out. We're on our own and the wolves are out there waiting for us. We don't want that. It's not going to happen here. But something in our system doesn't always know that. So to be in touch with if there's anxiety in the work, actually take a moment to stop and feel your body, feel your belly, as the Kinchino was describing just now. Take a pause. You know, if you stop three times in a 45-minute work period, and in each of those three times, the beginning, the middle, the end, you take three breaths, you'll have lost about a minute and a half of work. And that's if the breaths were pretty relaxed. Very little efficiency loss in that time. Immense contribution to your practice, and probably to your work as well. See if it's possible. Because it is. With the eating time, we can go very enthusiastically towards the sound. Have you noticed the sound of the bell that rings at 5.30 in the morning? Sounds really different than the sound of the bell that rings at 12.30 in the afternoon? There's something different about it? Have you noticed that? The response to it? Like, ah, 12.30, lunchtime. Oh, 5.30, wait. It's the same bell. It's the association, isn't it? We see that. Notice how we respond not to the experience, the bare sensory data, but the association we have with it. See, if we can just notice, oh, ring. Then, oh, that means get up. Or, oh, that means lunchtime. Going and taking food, noticing the pressure that arises in us and sometimes the judgment and the fear around our own behavior or the behavior of others around food. Food is one of the most highly charged things in our lives, along with sleep. But mostly we don't know or feel that because we're relatively in control of getting what we want, when we want it, and eating it with who we want to eat it with. And here we don't have those options. So it's a great place to see what we do with the territory. Take what you take. If you take a lot, can't eat it all, don't eat it all. doesn't matter what our mothers told us about starving people somewhere else. They will not get the food that's on your plate that you're forcing yourself to eat. If you don't eat it, they just won't get it. And sometimes we're afraid we'll be judged if we put it in the bin. It's a practice to do that. And then remember next time, maybe I'll take a little less. And if I'm still hungry, I'll go back and get some more. And also we might be afraid of getting more. It's okay to get some more. But notice if your mind is looking at, wow, look how much they took. And wow, they're having third helpings. And we judge them. Because that probably means we're scared of doing the same thing ourselves. With taking food, sit down. What a blessing. This wonderful food is offered. Mostly it tastes really good. The cooks are remarkable. It's not just the food, it's the quality of attention we bring to it. That's the thing about cookbooks from retreat centers. They sell very well, but the recipe doesn't include the full meditation instructions. It just, it's just cooking the food and eating it and wondering, mm, did I not cook all right? You might have cooked it perfectly. You didn't actually cook the um, person who is going to eat it fully yet. That's what we're doing here. We're cooking the consumer. And then the food really tastes good because we're there for it. Just as Akinshino said just now with the, the bagel and that, 
we start to get lost, we spin off. See if we can stay with it. And it's useful to understand one of the particular refinements, and I find this remarkable in the Buddha's teaching with, with Vedana, that the pleasant, when it becomes less pleasant, is experienced as unpleasant. So the lovely, crunchy, sweet, yum, shifts to the slightly less crunchy or familiar and overly sticky. Mm. Still pleasant, but not so. We experience it as unpleasant. It's not just neutral, it's unpleasant. We bounce off it very quickly if we're not there. And likewise, that the, yeah, the Buddha observed that the unpleasant, when it becomes less unpleasant, is actually experienced as pleasant. So our knee is aching and aching and aching quite strongly, and then it just starts to throb a little. I say, oh, oh that's quite nice. <laughs> and it's so, isn't it? They're so not objective. They're always in relationship to what was or what might have been. So watching that. And the last piece I'll add with that, because I find this a really useful piece of practice, is that with the pleasant, the neutral, and the unpleasant, we can see that pleasant and unpleasant involve an ease of connecting or a tendency to disconnect. And those Connecting, disconnecting patterns are very closely associated with the pleasurable and the unpleasant. With the neutral or the neither pleasant nor unpleasant experience, what the Buddha observed, and what I've observed and what you, I trust, can observe too, is that when we don't pay attention to the neutral, to the neither pleasant nor unpleasant, which is our habit, when we don't pay attention to it, it becomes unpleasant. Think of boredom. It's something that's neutral but boredom is not a neutral experience. We actually don't like it. And what's happened is it's neutral. We disconnect from it. We're not engaging with it. We disconnect. And the disconnect is unpleasant. The disconnection is unpleasant. It's a, it's a, it's a blank canvas, but we're disconnecting. And that's unpleasant. Whereas the Buddha observed with the, un, with the neutral, the neither pleasant or unpleasant, if we connect with it, it becomes pleasant. Remarkable. And it's true. Check it out. Because actually it's the connecting with it that's what's really pleasant. It's neutral, but the connection is experienced as pleasurable. Because it is. And it's a really clear place we can see how the quality of our connection, or not, actually is the underlying tonal, or the basis for the underlying tone of feeling enjoyment or nourishment. It's not the raw pleasure or displeasure experience, but it's the underlying more satisfying, dissatisfying element that's to do with being connected with or disconnected from. And of course, we, because we connect easily with the pleasant, we think it's the pleasant thing we're liking, but actually it's the connection. Because we disconnect quickly from the unpleasant, we think it's the unpleasant thing that's so painful, but actually it's the disconnect that's laminated onto it, which we can separate from it. And sometimes we can see that play out with food really well. Just taking a bit of rice, it's kind of neutral. No real flavor in it. Well, sometimes it does. But if you stay with it and really chew it, it becomes interesting. If you don't, it's just get it out of my mouth so I can get something more exciting in there. There's a whole world going on. I could say a lot more. Likewise in the walking, of course. Just noticing 
the states of mind. Noticing at times, and we might pause to notice the quality of the consciousness that's arising in the taking of the step or in the standing still for a moment. This is sometimes where slowing down is really helpful because we notice the pauses. The attention doesn't jump forward to the next strong or more intense experience or object arising. We can just pause when this thing has ended and the next thing hasn't yet begun and just take a temperature reading. It's a bit like noticing the weather. It's always some kind of weather, sunny, rainy, cloudy, cold, warm. Just notice, oh, there's the trees and the land and the people and then there's the weather. It's always there. And it has a profound conditioning effect on our inner experience if we're not conscious of what it is. Because we put on the wrong clothes. Simple translation of the weather metaphor. They say in Norway, there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothes. (laughs) And here in the hall, just to say, um, I had confirmation from the staff that yesterday at lunchtime, the temperature in the hall was raised by four degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know if you felt that or if you thought it was still as cold as it was, but at least according to any objective measuring system that's built into this, it is now warmer in here than it was yesterday. Um, And I hope that's supportive for you. What's interesting to note, however, is that it was already 68 degrees Fahrenheit, which in centigrade is 20. And in England, you're not allowed to heat a building above a public building like this above 19. Health and safety regulations say maximum temperature 19 degrees, that's 66 Fahrenheit approximately, because it encourages the growth of bacteria and viruses. This is an interesting one for Americans, I think, (laughs) who I notice like warm buildings but don't like bacteria and viruses. (laughs) Now, I don't know anybody who likes bacteria and viruses, but here it's pretty clear we don't like them. I don't get a lot of debate on the topic. I haven't seen, you know, they're my friends, leave them alone. Um, So we make a trade-off and we're making it. That's what we're doing. With that, particularly careful then that we take care of our little companions and we don't share that friendship group that we have. We keep it to ourselves. We cough into our elbows. We cover our mouths. We wash our hands and sanitize our hands regularly. When there are coughs going around, this is important for all of us. Whether you have or think you have something or think you don't, please, we still become part of the chain of transfer if we don't regularly wash our hands, even if they're not sourced from in our body. So wash your hands. And watch your mind. Fear in relationship to small bacteria, viruses, is sometimes a lot worse than catching a cold. And we can spend a lot of time in the fear of what it might be if I get those little things living in me. That's actually much more painful in itself, the fear and the anticipation and the anger and the irritation for the people who don't sometimes manage to wash their hands or catch their coughs or do all the things that I might think they should do in order that I, or we, don't get inhabited by more small creatures. There's already, actually, about 10 times more microbacterial cells in our bodies than there are cells of human organic tissue. You know that? 10 times more cells in here. A few more. Which ones? Ones we like, ones we don't like. They come and go too. That's how it is. So we might have to make peace with the fact that we are vulnerable to that. 
And we do what we can, of course, to take care. And the last health and safety thing, this is my fault. I left my chair there after the talk. We're actually not allowed, according to health and safety, to sit there. Sorry, it's not your fault. I did it a little further forward, but um, we need to move the chairs away from the, the fire exits. That's the, the health and safety roundup. Uh, the practice <laughs> continues through it all. It's time for small group meetings today. If you didn't have one yesterday, you will have one today. If you did have one yesterday, you will have one tomorrow. And there will be some spaces for individual interviews going up also at, um, around the lunchtime period. So if those who have their group now could be allowed to leave first and come promptly to the meetings. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.